Okay, well then, I guess this podcast is over. Thanks for having me. Wow. I'm very upset now and I don't feel like I can continue this podcast. (laughs) Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why all of the television I watch thinks that I am at least 70 years old. <laughs> every, why are you profiled as a Bridgerton? What is that? Every TV show I watch, Bridgerton. I get advertisements for medications mm, that presumably mm. I would only need yeah. if I were at least 10 years older. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why that is. Mm-hmm. Is it what I'm watching? They're forward thinking. They're preparing you. You're going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's going to make me feel better. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by co-host Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you, Matt. Nice to be here. And we are joined today by returning guest host, returning champion, (laughs) Dr. J.C. Grease from the Department of Community Health Sciences here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, J.C. Thanks for having me back. I say welcome back. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning where we find all kinds of interesting public health programs and videos. Nick says videos. So you can put your kids in front of it. (laughs) It acts as a babysitter. And they won't advertise things that you need 10 years from now. We don't know that. That's true. We don't know that. Mm. Population Health Exchange website might do that. Also, head on over to the iTunes or the Stitcher or the podcast app of your choice and give us a rating. We would very much like that. We haven't had a rating in a, in a few, uh, or we haven't had a, a review in a bit. We'd love to hear one. Maybe you could give I'm going to jump on right now, actually, give would, you one. Would you mind? No, not at all. That would really actually help us out. <laughs> All right, so now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on COVID in the NFL. And for our non-American listeners, that's the National Football League, which is American football. Sorry to disappoint you all. (laughs) Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we'll talk about mechanism mapping. And JC's going to walk us through that one because I'm not a mechanism mapper where JC is. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just found interesting. All right. So segment one, we're, we're, we're looking at an article that took on the issue of COVID and maybe you could say COVID prevention in the NFL. It was published in the journal Epidemiology. Full disclosure, I am on the editorial board at Epidemiology, and it was entitled Observed versus expected COVID-19 infections among National Football League players during the 2020 season by first author Michael Lopez of the National Football League, I believe, if I understood that affiliation correctly. I think of, and also it looked as if he has an affiliation. Also affiliated with Skidmore, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, working for the NFL, we can can make a decision as to whether or not we think that is a... Potential conflict. I didn't find any headlines on this one. It was just one that we thought was interesting. So, Jess, can you can you talk us through this one? Sure. This was an interesting one, and I think the the focus on the NFL kind of jumped out to us as something unusual yeah. as we you know kind yeah. of looking through our usual list of articles for the podcast. So, this, as Matt was saying, this paper kind of takes place in the context of this emerging literature looking at workplace interventions to reduce or mitigate COVID transmission in the workplace. And with these underlying questions of did it work, all these interventions that were implemented in various work environments. And I've actually, I've done some work on essential workers, quote unquote, in the context of COVID. And some might say the NFL perceives themselves to be some element of essential work. And so work went on in the NFL during this period of time with a lot of interventions. And so, so what did they do? So as we were saying, the core question is, was the NFL successful in reducing COVID transmission among its players and staff during the fall of 2020? So this is kind of their first season of play after the pandemic began. And unlike other professional sports leagues, the NFL did not have their players live in a bubble and quarantine as they did in other leagues. So the players were living at home and interacting in the community. But there were a series of workplace interventions that the league implemented to try to mitigate the risk of COVID among players and staff. And obviously, as we jump in, there's an enormous financial incentive here to keep these teams playing and no expense was spared in these in these in the kind of the intensity of some of these interventions so we'll go through 
what they did. So to look at this question, these researchers, I think it was four of whom are employed full-time by the NFL. So apparently the NFL has their own team of statisticians or people with epi background, which is kind of neat to know if you have an interest in sports and maybe want to do some applied work in this area that these leagues do, in fact, employ people to do this these sort of analyses. So what this group did, they compared COVID incidents by NFL team during the study period with projected distributions of COVID rates in the community community local proximal to that NFL practice arena for each team. So instead of using actual rates in the community, what they did is they simulated expected infections in each community cohort. I'll explain this a little more. And then compared these findings to the observed COVID incidents among the players. So they took this simulated approach for the main reason that the NFL players were tested daily for most of the study period, while other people in the community were not obviously tested daily or regularly or at all during the study period. And so what they were trying to do was to compare this intense, intensified frequency of testing and of observation to community-level cases where there were cases that were circulating, but there were many undetected cases at that time. So just by background, there are 32 teams in the NFL. And so these cases of COVID were embedded within these 32 teams and 32 counties and 32 geographic locations formed the basis for these community cohorts that were compared to these kind of team populations. The study took place, as I mentioned, from August to January 2020. So through the, the fall season, the fall NFL season in 2020. So here were a series of protocols that the NFL implemented during this period for the players and for the staff, which included, as I said, daily testing, use of proximity trackers, which I suppose was something embedded in their cell phones to try to identify who was near who, like some kind of contact tracing approach. Yep. They didn't really describe it. That was my understanding. Restrictions on access to game facilities, to training facilities and interactions, mandatory masking, restrictions on gathering for meals or meetings or other sorts of workouts or things of that sort, improvements in the ventilation and various closed spaces, disinfection, contamination, quarantine and isolation for people who are identified to be positive, contact tracing and modified travel activities for the players and the teams during this time. So what the what this group did is they developed, they called them infection trajectories corresponding to the communities surrounding the 32 training facilities, including the county in which, and these were on the county level, so including the county in which the facility was located, as well as the surrounding or abutting counties. They didn't exactly describe how they came up with that group of abutting counties, but they made the point that players didn't just live in the county where their training facility was or their stadium was, they, they lived kind of in a, a vicinity. And to simulate these community cohorts within these counties surrounding the training facilities, they used the, the incidence of COVID between 18 and 49 years of age, since the I think it was the mean player age in the NFL is around 26, 27. And so they were trying to choose the age bracket that most paralleled the age of the players. And so their goal was to simulate the number of cases in the community, including both the reported and the undercounted or the untested cases. And to do this, they used the CDC estimate of 6.5, quote unquote, like silent infections per each positive case. So for every positive case that was identified, CDC was estimating that there were six and a half additional actual undetected infections per positive case within this age range during the time. So they calculated the simulated infection rate, kind of including the actual infection rate, multiplied by the 6.5 additional cases per positive case scaled to the population of that given county. And they did some sensitivity analyses where they varied the number of actual cases per positive case, ranging from 3.5 to 12.4, to try to see how that estimate of six and a half additional kind of invisible cases per positive case affected their total estimates. So in conclusion, they found that during this study period, so August to, to January 2020, 256 players were tested positive during the study period. They didn't calculate the kind of the incidence of that, but I, I, it looked like it was about 15% of the NFL player population, based at least on my Google that there's about uh, 1,700 players in the NFL. 
COVID incidence, they determined, was consistently lower in the NFL teams compared to the community cohorts surrounding the communities. They identified a 55.7% reduction in incidence among the NFL teams compared to the community estimates overall by month. And as would be expected, the highest incidence within the NFL was concordant with the highest levels of community incidence, less so with outbreaks that were identified within the teams. So their overall conclusion was that the NFL's protections that were in place through this period work to dramatically reduce COVID incidents and mitigate transmission risk among members of the team and players and staff on the NFL. Uh-huh. Okay. All so right. we, we have a study that seems to say the NFL's protocols worked. Right. That's what... Where we're where starting seems, point is. One thing, is. one thing I just wanted to jump in on. You said that the NFL employs epidemiologists, which I think is technically not no, correct okay. based on what I see here. I think it's they imply statisticians, which makes more sense given the NFL's interest in you know, data I guess more that generally. is true. That is true. I didn't think of that. I think yeah. a lot of these teams probably, you know, they always made a big deal with like our Red Sox, you know, with the statisticians, right? Yeah. So, okay, that makes more sense. So, yeah. so I, th- I think we're, we're talking about statisticians, mm-hmm. but I, I could be wrong. Yeah. Maybe they are, mm-hmm. maybe they are. Sorry, Matt, so there's no opening for you to go work at the NFL. <laughs> no, no, there is. Okay, oh, so you're giving your notice. As a quarterback, I'm, right? I'm, <laughs> maybe, maybe a place kicker. <laughs> maybe, I doubt it. JC, did you buy that the NFL's done a really good job here? What's your what's your take on the study? I mean, so so my take is that yes, I, I think that they they did a good job of what they set out to do. My issue is with the link to, you know, all workplaces could do this kind of mm. mitigation and then, you know, we would be back to business because just as you pointed out, the the mitigation techniques that they did were very costly, very intensive, and it's really not feasible for a lot of workplaces to do that, for everyone to be back to business. You know, the ventilation, you know, addressing that is very costly. They were doing this at a time when I, when I, if I remember correctly, PCR tests were hard to come by. There were long lines, you know, so the three PCR yeah. tests before they could show up and play, and then the daily testing, people were scrambling to get tested. So, so a lot of the techniques they followed in an ideal setting, which for the NFL was an ideal setting, they had the funds to do that. Sure, it worked, but for the the communities, those mitigation strategies would not have been available to work. Mm-hmm. So, so that was one one issue I had with it. But I do think that they did a nice job of kind of going through and and thinking about the community catchment area and things like that. The, the other couple of things that I wanted to point out. So in the abstract, they talk about players and staff. Mm-hmm. And then staff does and not show up again in the, in the paper. And so part of me is wondering, well, is it really just a focus on the players? And they were very specific about the, the types of players that were included. Or is it that, and I, and I want to make assumptions here, but is it that there were staff that actually had higher rates mm-hmm. or higher incidents, and so they decided to essentially just focus on the players and remove the staff from the analyses? It's just interesting that it's heavily commented on in the abstract, and then it doesn't come out again in the paper. And then the other part in the discussion, they talk about compliance with these mitigation strategies. And I think, we're at least for me, when I was reading this, I was assuming the players were compliant, Right. Because they did have a lot of measures in place to, to check the players. But they don't really actually comment on how they checked compliance. And so for me, that was kind of a missing piece of if you're wanting to put into place mitigation strategies and then you want to examine compliance with them, you need to have measures in place to actually examine compliance with mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have that. And so for me, that was a missing piece. The the one thing, though, that, that stuck out the most, and Matt, you're going to love this based on your love of limitations in papers, I do love a good limitation. I know you do. I know you do. (laughs) Is this. So my favorite sentence in the whole paper, quote, the minimum salary for full-time players in 2020 was over 600,000. There is no known published work that assesses infection rates among American earners in this bracket. I know. Surprising. Mm. They didn't, they clearly didn't compare faculty. I mean, clearly they didn't. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. That's because we, we make more than that. That's the problem. (laughs) Yeah. That strikes me as, as an issue. I mean, to think that a relevant comparison group to a group of people whose minimum salary is $600,000 per year to the general public in the community, not everybody. They did limit it a bit in terms of, of age and, and geographic location. But 
infection rates clearly are different depending on whether or not you have the means and ability to you know stay away from other people now obviously you can't stay away from other people if you're playing professional football but you can stay away from a lot of people outside of that football group and it does strike me as well that football is a sport that is played outdoors or occasionally indoors but in very large stadiums and the stadiums were empty at this point so you know their their exposures outside of this this bubble of people not bubble isn't the right word because they weren't in a bubble, but outside of this group of people could have been very limited. And so it makes you wonder what the relevant, if you were, if you're really designing this study, who is the relevant counterfactual for these people? It's, it's not the general population. Mm. It's, it's some other group of people who also had the means to take a lot of protective action that these people had access to. And I, it's just not in there. Yeah, I I didn't feel like this paper actually demonstrated a whole lot of tremendous importance. It was kind of like we have a small group of extremely wealthy, resourced professional athletes who also are tremendously healthy and being monitored for their diet and for all kinds of biometric elements of their health. And to say that, you know, applying a series of of disease prevention efforts to this very select group of, of all men also that they are going to remain healthier than the general population of people from an 18 to 49 year age bracket in the community it like that it, it seemed to be an obvious like that 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 didn't seem to be of tremendous news to me that kind of taking an extremely healthy and well-resourced group of participants giving them a lot of disease mitigation resources that they're going to get less disease yeah. than other people in the community yeah. and so i had the same feeling of like okay okay, okay you know i, I I understand that, you know, the NFL, like other workplaces, are looking for a mechanism to justify the cost associated with these interventions. And yes, the NFL did go on. And in some ways, that's a public resource. People love football and they love watching it. And these games are able to continue. And it probably brought people a lot of happiness during periods of lockdown, right, that they could watch these football games. And so there is kind of a public good in protecting these professional athletes because they have a they have a role in society for people who love football. But I, I, I was I was struck again by that this was not the right comparison group to really demonstrate the success or the failure of their intervention programs. They would have needed a better counterfactual than just the general population estimate. So it's interesting that you say you phrase it that way because I was struck by the title of this study, <laughs> which is "Observed Versus right. Expected COVID nineteen Infections Among NFL Players." That's a very neutral title. Mm -hmm. That is a methods-focused title. We just compared two things. And yet, as you say, I mean, when they get to their conclusions, they certainly mm -hmm. are talking in terms that would suggest they believe there it wasn't just we were, you know, sort of in the in the in the right neighborhood. They believe that their approaches were in fact effective. And I don't think we have the evidence to say it was effective compared to some clearly specified alternative. All we know is they they did they did well, mm -hmm. and that I think is the is the big limitation. And not just effective here, but in the conclusion, they were saying that it could it reflects promise of mitigation strategies that you could extend to other. Let me see what team based <laughs> work environments. I mean, a team based work, work environment where that's people <laughs> tackle each other <laughs> outside, get a lot of money mm -hmm. for it, mm -hmm. people yep. cheering. Yep. You know, I, I think if that was the goal a better study, and this would not have happened in the NFL, would have been to take a bunch of those mitigation strategies and test them and see what combination of strategies actually results in best outcomes. You know, and it, do you really need all 10 of those strategies in a time like this, or would three or four suffice to reduce infection? So I just, I, I think, Matt, I agree with you. The title was misaligned, and it just, it was a very very drastic kind of statement of, as a conclusion for what they were aiming to do. I just, and for me as a practitioner, I always want to take the research and move it forward. And Jess, to your point, I was kind of left with, okay, great. Well, what do I do with this now? How do, how do I put this into practice? Because it really doesn't apply to any other setting. I mean, sure, lessons learned for other sports teams, great. You know, maybe the, the baseball league, like, you know, maybe they could use that for the next season, but it doesn't really apply. Yeah, that, that would have, I mean, in some ways that would have been the maybe the most relevant yeah. comparison group would have been comparing to what other sports leagues 
did where you had a similar type of participant, quote unquote, in this, you had a similar sort of person and maybe to compare bubbling versus not bubbling in that context during the sports season to see if one was more effective than the other, assuming that the other leagues kind of did a lot of these interventions. And most well. other sports leagues delayed, right? The the NFL, they they mm. moved forward with their full season, right? But I, think, I can barely remember last week, let alone what does, they did in does 2020. Does it though, that we're <laughs> not went, major sports fans? Oh, no, I'm a huge sports fan, and I watch every <laughs> um, single um, game. Um, but um, I don't I don't remember whether I was – I think yeah. they The NBA did. went into their bubble, and they delayed, but right. I don't remember. Mm, I don't, I don't know. Know. And MLB, they, 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 they delayed. But I think the NFL continued – like, oh boy. Uh, but but mm. that would have been a great lesson, right? Like we can ju- put get a whole right. season in with these strategies so, you know, other sports leagues take notice, not for other team-based work environments. Even then though, even then I I'm not even sure you can compare it to other sports because you can you can I think you can make the analogy that there's a similarity in terms of, you know, the 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 demographics and the the sort of the nature of the work, but football is Played once a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's played outdoors most of the time, whereas, you know, uh, all of the other major sports are played indoors. The size of the teams is very different from, say, basketball, even hockey, let's say. And the the closeness of contact when you're playing is also different from, say, baseball. Sure. Or, so it's even there, I think it's really difficult. The the one other thing I wanted to bring up is so so clearly we all are in agreement that the if, if you're gonna do this as a causal analysis and try to ascribe causation, you have to have a clearly defined comparison, counterfactual comparison. But you also need a clearly defined question. And I'm not sure the question is totally clear to me. This is not a specific critique of this study so much as it's a lot of COVID policy type studies in general, I think are very unclear because say, for example, you know, studies where people wanted to look at the impact of lockdowns on on COVID transmission. The, the there's generally a comparison to you know what we think would have happened if we had had no lockdown whatsoever and therefore you know let's say transportation would look exactly the way it did before except that we know that's not true we know that even in places where there's no lockdown people change their behaviors when they see waves of covid coming and so it isn't clear to me you know if you want to know how good the NFL was at in terms of their policy you'd have to figure out what you think would have happened had they had no policy and just gone ahead. I mean, people still would have taken some precautions, presumably. And we just, we, we, we have no easy way to estimate that in general, but in a very specific population like this, it's just really tough. Right. And there, I mean, the the understanding here, at least the, the assumption in terms of even looking at their title, observed versus expected COVID-19 infections among players, was that had the players not been you know, involved with the league and, you know, kind of party to these mitigation efforts, they would have just been kind of a regular member of the community mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. know that that's not the case. Right. And so the quote unquote expected community levels of disease would would likely not be what they would have experienced because of their privilege. And, you know, they, they made the comment later in the paper that maybe they would have traveled or yeah. done, you know, that, that it was hard to predict the directionality of the effect from their relative privilege. But most likely from what we know about COVID that these are these are wealthy individuals and they would have successfully protected themselves most likely better than other members of the community. Right. When you're just looking kind of at everyone from an 18 to 49 age range in the surrounding counties. Yep. So I, the 18 to 49 was another interesting mm-hmm. one because yeah. it seems to me a lot of a lot of the ability to make this comparison rests on two assumptions. One is that you've got the right comparison population, and we all agree mm-hmm. that this is probably not the right comparison population. But in in terms of age stratification. They picked 18 to 49, which is on average older than the NFL right. population, right. which I would think would would make this a quote unquote conservative estimate, meaning, you know, the younger my understanding, my, my sense is that, you know, people in their 20s are the most likely to get infected. Right. And so by including people sort of all mm-hmm. the way up to age almost 50, the community is probably actually on average their their risk is probably yeah. Lower, uh, sorry, yeah, lower than yeah. what you would expect. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I don't know that that's conservative. Conservative is a, is a rough term. But my, my point is that you don't have a perfect comparison there. The The other one is this assumption of six undetected infections right. in the community right. compared to in the NFL where they're doing daily testing. They know every infection. In one case, you know for sure or you know with 
a lot of certainty how much infection there is. And in the other, you're making an assumption. And I don't know how well that assumption necessarily holds over time, whether that is something that's changed with more testing. You know, I just, I, I don't have a great sense, but I, I get a little concerned about that multiplier. Yeah, they even said, I mean, that I think that reflected something like August and September rates where, you know, there were increases November, December. And so they didn't uh, they didn't adjust for that either. They just used that 6.5 throughout. You know, so they they talked a lot about it, how possibly the actual gaps were greater than what, what they saw. But yeah, it, I just, I think it, again, the title of this and in reading it at the beginning and then where you come out at the conclusion was a very big disconnect. And what do you do with this? Not much. I, yeah, I, I do think that this is part of a burgeoning literature, as we were talking about, of workplace interventions and kind of trying to decide, did they work and were they worth the investment? And what was, can we quantify the benefit? And Matt and I were talking earlier that our, you know, our own university is starting to publish papers along these lines as well, looking at the testing that was done of students, faculty, and staff, and kind of the isolation and quarantine of students and the effectiveness of these policies focused on how many cases were prevented. And it's very, very difficult because it's very difficult to know who do you compare to. And, as, you know, I think I, I, you know, in looking at those papers that our university has published, obviously there are a, a, a number of different populations, but many of them are university students in a very particular kind of living arrangement, right? And so the idea is do you compare them to other university students, to incidents of other university students? Do you compare it to the surrounding community? How do you balance those kind of all of those factors to make an argument or a case one way or the other to say what we did was successful. So I think this this paper is just, I think it's emblematic of, mm-hmm. of what is going to be coming down the road as yep. people really start to think sure. about what did we do, was it effective, and how can we quantify it? And the, the was it effective part, it's, it's then how do we apply it, right? Do, do Is it really generalizable? Because the context here, for example, is very different than in other universities, right? We have this space here to quarantine students in their own dorm, in a separate dormitory. Other campuses don't have that ability. So can we really take the results from here and lift it to a smaller campus where they don't have that ability? You know, I think we really need to think about best practices and how we use them and the context in which we put them, because it's not really generalizable. It's very context-specific. I would agree with that. The lessons that we learn are going to be very specific Mm -hmm. to the context that they were generated in. In, in, Another point worth making is this was original variant COVID. Mm -hmm. This was not Omicron, which is far more infectious. And who knows how things would have gone in a situation where there was just so much more transmission occurring in the community. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, so I, I we were talking about what's the relevant comparison in terms of the intervention. I mean, it, it could have been we have the NFL season, but we don't have any any mitigation measures. The third option would be, or one of another option would be, what would the NFL players' infection rates have been if they had canceled the season completely? And yeah. I'm guessing they would be very different. Mm-hmm. We just don't we don't know. So without a clear question, it's it's very hard to know. I guess the good news is if we are in another pandemic. Well, I guess we have to get out of this one and then get into another uh, one. Don't say that. Please don't say that. Please don't say that. <laughs> NFL can continue on. They have the evidence that, you know, they can keep playing. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So can we end then with the I, what I thought was the biggest limitation of this paper, which is from what I read, and I read this pretty thoroughly, I didn't see any statement in here whatsoever acknowledging Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, it's not in there. You're talking to a Giants fan, so I am going to. Stop talking. Okay. Well, then I guess this podcast is over. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Wow. I'm learning. But I'm a Red Sox fan, so, you know. (sighs) I'm very upset now, and I don't feel like I can continue this podcast. (laughs) Great. Just in time for me to teach you something about mechanisms. All right. So then let's move on. I hope you can teach us, because I don't know very much about this, so I'm looking forward to this, too. Let's move on to our second segment. So so we are going to do something a little bit different this time. We're looking at a paper that came from PLOS Medicine entitled Mechanism Mapping to Advance Research on Implementation Strategies by Elvin Gang and Colleagues. And normally I introduce this, but this is not something that I know very much about, and JC does, so she is going to take the wheel here and guide us through this one. So, so 
Take it away. All right. I'm going to try, and I'm going to try to unpack this so it's not too boring. All right. Okay. All right. So this was a short article, but it really did have a lot going on. So this was a perspective piece about how we advance research relating to implementation. So implementation is when we put a design program or policy into practice so that we're delivering it in ways that we intend to deliver it. We spend a lot of time designing programs and policies. We want them to be evidence-informed or evidence-based. But then when you put them into practice, they have to actually live up to what you had designed. So that's what implementation is about. The foundation for this article is that trials of implementation strategies, so ways in which we put these programs and policies into practice, require very specific ways in measuring them to make sure that they actually are put into practice in the ways that we intended and that the target population, so the people they're designed for, are receiving them in the ways that we intended. It's not just enough to say, we did this program, here are the outcomes. What we really need to be saying is, this is how the program worked in practice, and then these are the outcomes we got. Because it's very hard to interpret outcomes without knowing if your program actually was implemented Mm -hmm. the way you intended. So usually, and this is where I'm not going to go on and on, but I could, usually (laughs) programs actually don't show the strength of anticipated outcomes that we want to see, programs and policies, for a variety of reasons. But what happens is when you evaluate programs and policies and they don't show the outcomes that the funder is expecting or the community is expecting, those evaluations don't see the light of day because it's seen as a failure. And what these authors are saying is failures are actually just as important as successes Mm -hmm. when we're looking at outcomes. So we need to find ways to measure them and, and then identify where the implementation failed so that we can then move the field forward and and try to uncover how we can better implement these strategies. So in order to do that, the authors use a recently published study to illustrate their point. So in public health, usually the way we approach things, it's a very complex system, a very kind of multifaceted approach to addressing a particular public health problem. So the authors argue that the studies or strategies or efforts that focus not only on the outcomes of the strategy, but also on the processes of delivering them, allow us to see what we can do better going forward. And that's implementation science. So implementation science, I think, is, you know, at least for the students I talk to, it's this hot field that everyone seems to want to get into and not many people understand exactly what it is. The goal of implementation science is really to generate generalizable knowledge through scientific study of methods to promote the systematic use, so the ongoing systematic use of evidence-based strategies and practices within a complex system. So it's it's really kind of that that look at what's happening overall and getting to a generalizable place where you have frameworks and models to help guide you in the future. So essentially, that's how we use research and evidence to foster the use of of interventions and approaches. So we're not just focused on the outcomes, but we're focused on how we got those outcomes. So for example, let's put this in the COVID context. If we're implementing a COVID vaccination program in a community Mm -hmm. where we have a goal of getting 80% of children vaccinated within four months, right? Let's say that within four months, we only get to a 40% vaccination rate of children. How do we know that it's because our vaccination program wasn't really that well designed? so it didn't do what it was supposed to do, or that it actually was well-designed, but we just didn't implement it in the way it should have been implemented. The answer to that question is really important because if it actually was well-designed, then we can do that in other communities with the right answers about how we do it better, mm-hmm. yeah, how we support it better. So the authors of this article take a recently published study, and so I'm gonna give you just a very quick overview of the study because I think it helps put in, into context what they're trying to say. So the study that they're using is by Sarkis and colleagues entitled Effectiveness of Knowledge Brokering and Recommendation Dissemination for Influencing Healthcare Resource Allocation Decisions, a Cluster Randomized Controlled Implementation Ooh, Trial. Just quite a, short a, quite a title. Basically what they did, this was conducted in Australia and New Zealand in hospitals from February 2018 to January 2020, so just before pandemic, they clustered a group of hospitals at the organizational level, so the decision-making level, and they provided one of three conditions to assess staffing and information dissemination in order to decrease length of stay in patients in rehab units. So the first condition was the usual practice, so just regular staffing as they would normally staff those units. The second was dissemination of written materials, so information to managers about how to better staff those units using evidence. Maybe there should be more staff. Maybe there should be different kinds of staff in order to reduce patients' length of stay. And then the third were use of knowledge brokers. So knowledge brokers are actual people who deliver the information, the evidence in person 
presumably in person, but this was done through webinars, to the decision makers, to the managers to say, here's the evidence, here's how you can change your staffing structure. So it was usual practice, information by material, information by person. And the study found that neither the written materials nor these knowledge brokers, the people delivering the information one-on-one, had any effect on staffing or patient length of stay. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. So the question really is, why? Why is that the case? Is it because the approach didn't work or because the, the approach wasn't implemented the way it should have been? So that's what this article that we are talking about is referencing this other one to say that really we need to uncover this through what's called this mechanism mapping. So the authors in this article, and this is where implementation science fits in, the authors in this article recommend some different ways that you can really uncover what's happening with these relationships in terms of designing something and then having it be put into practice. So one is called intervention mapping. For any listeners out there that have trained at BUSPH, if you're doctoral or master's students, you've been through an intervention mapping course because that's what we use at at this school in, in teaching a framework for program design and implementation and evaluation. Another one is this mechanism mapping, which the authors really did fall on, which is a way to look at policies and break down different policy analysis and look at the approach of policies. Another is the directed acyclic graphs, which we all know and maybe love in EPI, which are are otherwise known as DAGs, to identify knowledge and assumptions about different causal linkages. So there's just a variety of ways that you can unpack a very complicated effort. So what this study did was it broke down that Sarkey's study by saying that the approach of the knowledge broker really worked in three different pathways. One, they had to form these linkages with these managers to say, listen, here's the evidence on staffing. What are you going to do with it? The other was then to offer the evidence to the staffing on the managers and then to convey some skills so that they could actually move forward and and change their staffing structure. So there's things that these knowledge brokers had to do and assumptions that were made that they would do. So some of the assumptions were, are the managers even in a decision-making capacity, right? If you're giving someone information and they can't do anything with that information, nothing's going to change anyway. It assumes that the knowledge brokers actually did talk to those managers and have some kind of connection with them. If there's no connection with them, nothing's going to happen. It assumes the managers actually think the evidence is feasible and can work in their own practice. And it turns out that those three assumptions actually weren't true, which Mm. is why this knowledge broker didn't work. But the only reason we got to that point is because it was mapped out and all these assumptions were laid out and you can investigate where the breakdown was. So... You know, the bottom line is that even a failed intervention can provide some really valuable insights. And I think in public health and I, you know, not just interventions, but also study designs, right? If you, if we approach something and it's not up to the rigor that maybe we want it to be, maybe there wasn't the funding, maybe we didn't have the right collaborations, the right resources, whatever it is, it doesn't mean it's not publishable. It doesn't mean it shouldn't see the light of day. We still can glean lessons learned and move the field forward and do better next time. And that's really kind of what the crux of that this was saying is we have to look between the lines. We can't just look at the outcomes. We have to look at what's going on and how we're putting this into practice in order to tease apart what we do better next time and how we provide context to the outcomes that we've we've uncovered. So is the idea here that essentially what we're doing is trying to figure out how we take the idealized, you know, things that we find in in the kinds of studies that we're looking at and how we we turn them into interventions that actually can work in communities and in cases where they don't, we can figure out why so that we aren't essentially throwing away potentially effective interventions. We are retooling them and tweaking them to to get them to where we know they can be under those idealized circumstances. Is that essentially where we're going? It is. The issue comes with funding, right? Because usually to chart progress, you look at outcomes. And so there's two ways to evaluate a program. One is the process, which is what implementation science is, to say what's going on. And the other is how effective were we? And that's the outcome. And usually we're funded to look at outcomes, right? Funders want to know. Government wants to know. Local entities want to know. Did we meet our targets? How did we shift things with this particular program or policy? So so we're, we're well-funded in public health to do that. We're not well-funded to look at what, what did we actually do? What happened in practice? And so something in the past 20 years especially that, that's come out, especially through a few government agencies, is that Congress now to some degree mandates process evaluations to occur before outcome evaluations, meaning let's do proof of concept. Let's do pilots. Let's look and see what's happening on the ground to get these into place. Forget about the outcomes for a second. 
Do you have the right training? Do you have the right staff? Do you have the right evidence to inform the strategies that you're using? And then let's look at the outcomes once we know that that's in place the way it's it mm-hmm. should be in place. Because now we're in a position to look at outcomes and measure outcomes because we know we're doing what we said we should be doing in that community. And does this imply that a lot of, I guess the question is, how often do you think we end up throwing away perfectly good interventions because we didn't understand the reasons why when we tried them, they didn't work? Very often. I think we actually throw them out even more often when we don't continue to look at what's going on. We just, we, we hit some kind of outcome and a funder says, great, two years later, you've achieved that outcome. Moving on, you're, you know, no more funding for that, that program. Let's go on to something else. When really we're, we're in public health for sustainability, right? We want to change public health for the long term. And so you can't just rely on a two-year program here and there to do that. You have to follow through with it. The context changes, right? Think about COVID. There are certainly programs, especially school-based programs, for example. You know, I know we all have kids, like, you know, programs in the schools maybe related to mental health that started before COVID went by the wayside. But had we followed them through and had we changed them based on what we were what we were experiencing with COVID, we could have done such a good service to these kids. And instead, they just they get tossed aside because other priorities take over or because the funding is out or because we saw some outcomes and that's good enough for now. It's really, I'm really glad actually that you walked us through this because this is one of those papers that to me had had kind of groups of words that I know individually, <laughs> but in this context, I couldn't, I was like, there were, you know, sentences. I was like, in each of these words separately, I know what they mean, but written <laughs> together in this configuration, I have no idea what they're talking about. But I think, I mean, just to go back to your example that you gave about COVID vaccination, for example, I think there, you know, in the public health realm, I think we often default to saying it is the fault of the public. Mm. If our programs don't work, we are blaming it on kind of an anti-vax mentality that we have no relationship to. And I'm sure there's people who are trying to unpack, especially with children's vaccination, kind of looking to unpack kind of how that policy has been carried out and led to the given outcome rather than kind of stepping back and saying the whole thing is just a failure. So I had that frame, you know, where you kind of framed it around COVID. It made a lot of sense to me. And thinking about it, the concern that I would have, though, is that the assumption that every intervention is workable if you just right. study it deeply right. enough. Sure. And, you know, the idea that if you just continue to get the right people in the right place, it could become like an endless, mm-hmm. you know, you have this idea and you know it's going to work if only yeah. you just continue to pump resources into it. And it, I, I don't know where that point is where you just have to say maybe this is just not the best approach. So so it's good to start an intervention with like a decision tree, right? So at some point you just have to make that determination that we tried this, this and this. And, you know, it's best to move on to either something else or we adapt this considerably or this isn't the right context or community, you know, to implement this in. So we're going to move on and do something else. But you're, you're exactly right. I mean, we, ca- we don't have the time and money to continually test them. And sometimes they're not appropriate. And, but it's coming out and saying this program, this policy was not appropriate for this target population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what evaluators have a really hard time doing because it looks like a failure on the program, when really the failures, I I truly think we get more from the failures than the successes, because then we don't repeat them. I mean, it's similar in like, you know, clinical trials, the distinction between what a medication would do if everyone took it perfectly versus what people actually do in terms of imperfect Mm -hmm. consumption or use of the the treatment. But in some ways, though, the real world implications sometimes is what matters, right? Kind of what actually happens when you try to roll this out in the imperfect context of all the imperfect components of the the project. And sometimes that's the statement is that the system is imperfect and we can't get every Mm -hmm. single Mm -hmm. knowledge broker is not going to be absolutely (laughs) stellar, but that's that's the real world. And we carry out these policies and these practices in the real world. It's kind of like in a research study where you try to track down all the participants who Mm -hmm. were lost to follow up and figure out exactly what happened to them mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the hopes that you can avoid continued loss in your longitudinal study. And sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. Yeah. Yeah. JC, any last, any last points on this you want to, you want to make before we move on? No, I just, I, I think whether it's evaluation, whether it's research, clinical trial, whatever it is, I think every finding has a place in the discourse and it's just how we frame it, how we talk about it, and then how we derive lessons learned to move forward. Works for me. Well said. All right. So in that, let's move on to our last segment, which is our 
Amazing and amusing. Jess, I'm going to start with you this time. Okay. What do you got? Oh, I actually, I have I have kind of an interesting paper that struck my interest. I actually, it, it just came out earlier this week in Science. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, my co-host can see this beautiful photo that, like, printed with it or this graphic <laughs> that printed with it inadvertently on this lovely color printer, but it is very nice. And this this article was titled Brawn Before Brains, was in Science, published earlier this week. And was looking to document in the evolution of mammals, which came first, body size or brain size. And there has been apparently in the field of evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary paleontology, the idea that brain size has come for, you know, mammals have the largest brains relative to their body size of all animals. And that that has been kind of this strategic focus of evolution has been growing the brain, growing the brain, growing the brain, because species that have more larger brains have greater intelligence, greater adaptability, and are more successful. And so what these authors did is they looked at specimen, this is where it goes a little tricky for me across all of the different paleontological (laughs) periods of, of, you know, the earth, but where they were looking at fossilized and, you know, kind of the fossil evidence comparing the ratio basically of brain size to body size. And they used this measurement, which struck me as, as kind of awesome, called the phylogenic encephalization quotient, the P-E-Q, which was mm-hmm. tricky because phylogenic doesn't sound like a P, even though it's spelled with <laughs> a P. I was like, P. <laughs> anyway, it's a measure of relative brain size, the ratio of actual to expected brain volume for a given body exactly size. exactly the same as our paper, observed to expected. And so that is why I wanted to talk about it because, you know, however, you know, instead of having slightly an artificial referent group, what they were doing is they were looking at across Across the evolutionary history, they were looking at the brain size that should be expected, kind of aggregating Mm -hmm. animals given a certain body size. And so what they found, which was very interesting, is that body mass after the dinosaurs went extinct, body mass in mammals increased dramatically faster than brain size. And this was due, they're hypothesizing, to the competitive advantage because there was so much space. Mm -hmm. Apparently, during the reign of the dinosaurs, existing mammals were very small, and they kind of screed underfoot, and the dinosaurs really dominated the landscape. Mm -hmm. But after the dinosaurs were gone, all of a sudden, there was space (laughs) and, and, you know, to to move around and to expand. And so over the course of millions of years, the mammals really got huge. And the brain capacity came later. And mm. like notably later mm. through these developmental periods. And I thought this was I thought this was very interesting. I thought it was cool that this paper was published in science. It was yeah. cool also it was led by a postdoc, which I oh, thought wow. was I thought was really very neat. cool. Yeah, kind of the one who was doing a lot of these measurements and kind of putting together these core hypotheses about which which eras should have bigger brains and Right. I mean, I think the idea is kind of that brain and body, like brain came first and that there it was kind of this linear trend. And so she was demonstrating yeah. that that really doesn't seem to be the case. It does make you wonder if we would have developed differently if the dinosaurs hadn't died off. Mm. Probably. We we would have yeah. remained us. We would have remained quite small, small. Is at least this argument that the dinosaurs kind of consumed the vast amount of resources. They were the core predators. And so there there wasn't space in the environment for if we're large, consuming, you know. And, well, thank um, goodness for asteroids then. <laughs> goodness gracious. This was kind of, this was just kind of a neat. Very a cool. Neat, a neat paper. Very yeah. interesting. The things that are cool about that to me are the idea that someone has to start studying that mm-hmm. and exploring that, you know, the, the impetus to. Somebody, mm-hmm. somebody came up with that idea. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. All right, JC, what do you got? So I have a New York Times article from March Quote, U.S. News ranked Columbia number two, but a math professor has his doubts. Did you guys see this? I saw no. this. Oh, you I did saw not. This. Okay. I did. I actually sent this to my husband because I was like, this This was pretty dramatic. It was, yeah. it was very dramatic. And the reason that it occurred to me to talk about today is because I think it very much aligns with this whole transparency and process that mm-hmm. we talked about in, this, in the second segment. So this professor of algebraic geometry challenged Columbia's new number two ranking, now tied with Harvard right behind so Princeton. This is the US, and his own this is department. The US of News. Colleges. Yep. Ranking and this is his own department. He's challenging the ranking of his own of his own department. Oh, wow. department. He's right. He's at Columbia. He's a member okay, of this so department. they get ranked number two, and he's saying right. he's saying that mm. quote that was so the key supporting data was quote inaccurate, dubious, or highly misleading. So 
he's a mathematician. So he goes through all of the different data points that U.S. News uses to rank colleges, right? So class size, terminal degrees of faculty, number of full-time faculty, student-to-faculty ratio, spending on instruction, and graduation rates. And what he says is based on the data he has, which it's not all the data, so he had to extrapolate from different sources, but based on the data he has, Columbia overestimated everything, and he has no idea where these numbers come from, and he's questioning the number two ranking. Mm. So I'm not going to challenge his position. Okay. I'm not going to challenge Columbia's ranking. Rankings just came out across the board. I'm not even going to challenge the value of U.S. News rankings. Right. But what I really want to talk about is that he is going out on a limb to challenge the process Jeez. of how these rankings come to be. So he wrote— Especially when his own exactly. department is, or school is ranked exactly. number two. Wow. I know. So he wrote a 21-page—I mean, I printed it off, so it's 21 <laughs> pages from online—critique of how this came to be and why he disagrees with— or question, I should say questions the ranking. And what it comes down to is that, you know, 20% of the U.S. news rankings are based on data that we can access or on peer review, mm-hmm. right? Other colleges doing peer yep. review. 80% of the data comes from in-house. That is not necessarily privy to anyone outside the university's use or access. And they share it with U.S. News? And they share it with mm. U.S. News. They share it with you know different government agencies that U.S. News then gets. But it's not necessarily data that we can access. And so this uh, this particular professor couldn't access a lot of the data. But just from showing up in the classroom and seeing his class sizes, from seeing the number of full-time faculty on Columbia campus, I mean, really started questioning all of this and, and questioned Columbia's ranking, but questioned the process and the transparency of the process of how we go about wow. ranking universities. And the reason this really struck a chord with me is because this is what essentially implementation science, and this is what we do in the field to say, what is the process? Is it working? We need to be transparent, even if that means we are admitting that it's not a good process, right? The thing that gets tricky is, you know, he's using a case study of his own institution. I'm not going to comment on whether that that makes sense. Perhaps he should have maybe hired some independent (laughs) evaluator to come in and and do some work there. But but I think that it is, I I can see from one side how how he would do this. And I I very much appreciate it, right? Because you're calling out the process. On the other hand, it comes at a cost, and now he's being kind of raked through the coals a bit. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but it is very interesting. Wow, that's very cool. I did not hear about that. You clearly don't. Yeah, no, it was a dramatic story. I mean, I think you can think about it from the perspective of a faculty member, kind of like it takes some gumption to kind of come out, especially if your ranking has gone up. And, mm-hmm. you know, our ranking has gone up at the School of Public Health, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about that just in these in these latest rankings. And right, it can, it can it certainly takes a lot of gumption to kind of come out and say, "Hold on a second. Yeah, it sure does. And yeah. the way he started by saying the they've <laughs> risen the ranks faster right. than any university. I mean, he was right. you know very dramatic, true, but dramatic right. in how it was framed. So wow. very cool. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks for sharing that one. All right, well, mine is a short one. I found on Twitter. Carl Bergstrom had tweeted this one out, but it's the title of an article, and the article was published in the journal. Biologia? I don't know. Here in 2022. And I'm going to read you the title of the article. It's best I can because this is not a field that I know the words, but the title is as follows The karyotype of Pimela della Cristata solifurinase hepatrididae from Central Amazon Basin, colon, with a discussion on the chromosome variability. In Pimaleda, I as the editor, <laughs> i.e., no, not as the author of the article, can confirm this is okay to proceed. You have, however, to get also the reply from the author. Thank you. Nevertheless, figures one to three should somehow be inserted within the main text of the paper, and I do not know why my reply is automatically directed to Frank Franco. <laughs> question mark. And that's a wrap. That on there is listed on their website as the title. Of the article. Oh, no. I have been some staff cuts. I have no words. I have no words only because you just used all all the words. That is all the words. Um, So... That is impressive. Mm. Well, you know, there is this this movement now to like openness of peer review <laughs> and every communication with the editor has to be public. There this you is go. Maybe so now it goes extreme. into the title. <laughs> there you the go. Title. <laughs> there you go. All right. Full well, transparency. There, exactly. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode or you have a study or a topic you want us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthDX or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or Don at, at DThea1, Chris at ID.Gill. 
Jessica Liebler. No, one day, one day I will. At JC-Grease. At JC-Grease. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and making us wear headphones even though they do nothing. Thanks for joining (laughs) us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. (laughs) 